listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. membership rose by almost 40% to 3.3 million. The United Mine Workers had close to 500,000 members, over 80% of all coal miners. The carpenters and machinists had more than 330,000 each. By 1919, more than 1.8 million railroad workers belonged to AFL affiliates or the independent brotherhoods. Many of the new union members came from sectors of the workforce that the AFL and the Railroad Brotherhoods had declined to organize in the past. The railway clerks, which had few female members before the war, recruited some 35,000 women in 1918 through 1918. By the summer of 1918, even the machinists had enrolled 12,500 women who made up about 5% of the membership. Workers of color were not so welcome. The AFL still excluded anyone of Asian descent. Unions in meatpacking and still signed up Latinos, but in the Southwest, where their numbers were greatest, most AFL affiliates required that Spanish-speaking members be citizens and assigned them to segregated locals. For African Americans, AFL unionism could mean segregation, wholesale exclusion, or worse. In the pulp and paper mills of Bogalusa, Louisiana, the carpenters recruited black and white workers into separate locals. In Key West, Florida, the unions refused to admit black carpenters and thus prevented their employment on an army construction project. AFL organizers in Steel signed up black workers in Cleveland, but not in Pittsburgh where white unionists were so hostile that the black community came to see them as the main obstacle to its advancement. The atmosphere was even more hateful in East St. Louis, Illinois. In May 1917, its Central Labor Council vowed to tackle the growing menace of black migration to the city. When two policemen were killed in a gunfight in a black neighborhood on July 1st, White workers mustered in union halls for a two-day rampage against African Americans. At least 39 people were killed, many more burned out of their homes, and some 6,000 black residents fled the city. When the Great War ended on November 11, 1918, total union membership in AFL affiliates, railroad brotherhoods, and other unions topped 4 million. 
a still worker in Canton, Ohio, captured the spirit of the times. The justice of the, of the demand for a fair share has been established. It's not going to be given up now that war had ended. The years 1919 through 1922 saw more than 10,000 strikes involving over 8 million workers, more than 4 million in 1919 alone. A fifth of the labor force outside domestic work, workers in U.S. colonies took militant action as well. Against the advice of Samuel Gompers, Puerto Rico's Federation Liber de Trabajadores had staged wartime strikes in the sugar and tobacco industries. Political realignment rippled through radical labor as well. Socialists who supported the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia broke away from the SP in September 1919 and formed two new revolutionary parties, the Communist Party, mostly immigrants, and the Communist Labor Party, mostly native-born activists. In 1923, they merged with other pro-Bolshevik factions to found the Workers' Party of America, later known as the Communist Party USA. Many Wobblies joined the new communist movement, Big Bill Haywood and Elizabeth Gurley Flynn among them. Racial conflicts divided workers and unions in the summer of 1919. Race riots erupted in cities and towns across the country with African Americans fighting off assaults on their communities. A five-day riot in Chicago halted cross-racial organizing in the packing houses. Radicalism and racial pride surged among black workers. Cyril Briggs and Richard Moore left the SP in 1919 to found the African Black Brotherhood, dedicated to socialism and black liberation. By 1923, the Brotherhood had 7,000 members, including a chapter of West Virginia coal miners. Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association UNAI won a gigantic following. Founded in 1914 in Jamaica to promote black pride and power, the UNIA had half a million U.S. members by 1921. Inside the AFL, black unions attacked the failure to press affiliates on their color bars. At the Federation's 1920 convention, David Grange of the Marine Cooks and Stewards Union shouted from the floor. It did not offend the dignity of any man to send the Negro into firing lines in France. Repression of radicals only increased after the war ended. The Justice Department established a radical division headed by a young J. Edgar Hoover to compile dossiers on subversives on the night of January 2, 1920, Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer deployed federal agents in 70 cities across the country to arrest and detain 10,000 people identified in department files as aliens and communists. About 500 were deported. The rest turned out to be citizens or immigrants without radical ties. State governments joined the hunt for subversives. New York's Lusk Committee began to investigate un-American activities in 1919. 
It was the first of many such initiatives. By 1921, 32 states outlawed criminal syndicalism, advocating illegal labor tactics, distributing literature that encouraged them or belonging to an organization that endorsed them. In 1923, California sent 164 Wobblies and Communists to prison. Massachusetts charged Nicola Sacco and Bartolomo Vinzetti, Italian immigrants, active in Boston anarchist circles, with a double murder during a payroll robbery. They were convicted in July 1921, despite sturdy alibis, and finally executed on August 23, 1927. Vigilante attacks on radicals also continued. On November 11, 1919, an American Legion contingent attacked the IWW offices in Centralia, Washington. One Legionnaire was killed and all the Wobblies defending the office arrested. Among them was the lumberjack Wesley Everest just back from the war and still wearing his army uniform. That night, the town's jail turned him over to a group of upstanding citizens who castrated, hanged, and riddled his corpse with bullets. Six other men were, who defended the IWW office that day got prison sentences of 25 to 50 years. In Bogalusa, two AFL unions the Carpenters and the International Timber Workers united black and white workers to strike the Great Southern Lumber Company in 1919. The company organized and armed a self-preservation and loyalty league to harass the strikers. On November 22, 1919, league members opened fire on Sol Dacus, the strike's most vocal black leader, killing him and four white workers who had come to his aid. Racism even tainted the final victory of the women's suffrage movement. By 1917, both major parties endorsed votes for women who had already been enfranchised by 11 states. In January 1918, the House of Representatives narrowly passed the 19th Amendment for women's suffrage after several defeats. The Senate passed it in June 1919. Ratification came down to a single state, Tennessee where white suffragists argued that enfranchising educated white women would help to preserve racial segregation, and the state legislature approved the amendment by one vote. It became law in August 1920. After the war, the Labor Board was dismantled in June 1919. Corporate America launched a new campaign for the open shop. The first target was AFL organizing in Still. By mid-1919, the Still Drive had signed up about 100,000 workers, a quarter of the industry's labor force. When the company began to fire union activists, organizers called a strike for September 22nd. Within a week, 365,000 men had walked out. U.S. Steel led the counterattack. It mobilized local and state courts and police departments which deputized company guards and private detectives. Pickets were beaten, arrested, and jailed by the thousands, and 20 strikers were killed. Immigrants came under especially heavy assault. Still executives described the strikers as ignorant foreigners led by red radicals, and the press agreed. 
Samuel Gompers tried in vain to persuade his friends in government to impose arbitration. In January 1920, the still strike and organizing drive collapsed in defeat. Hostility to immigrants took many other forms as well. It fueled the spectacularly unsuccessful experiment with the prohibition of alcohol, inaugurated in January 1920 under the Constitution's 18th Amendment, many advocates of prohibition had touted it a means of controlling unruly immigrant communities, and enforcement of the ban was now aimed disproportionately at immigrants. Immigrants were also subject to vigilante attack. Coal miners in West Frankfurt, Illinois, were on strike when rumors circulated in August 1920 that Italians had committed some local bank robberies and murders. Striking miners joined nativist mobs in a three-day rampage against foreigners and drove hundreds of immigrants, including fellow strikers, out of town. Anti-immigrant sentiment passed into law at every level. An Alabama statute called for state inspection of Roman Catholic convents said to imprison kidnapped Protestant girls. In 1913, California had barred Asian immigrants from owning land. Now they were barred from leasing it. Federal immigration laws passed in 1921, 1924, and 1927 altogether excluded Asians and reduced arrivals from Eastern and Southern Europe to a few thousand a year. The annual number of deportations climbed from 3,600 in 1923 to 16,000 in 1929. Employers still needed new workers, and Congress did not restrict immigration from the Americas or U.S. colonies. Filipinos on the U.S. mainland, mostly young men working in agriculture, rose in number from about 5,600 in 1920 to 45,300 in 1926. The numbers of Mexican immigrants in the border states expanded from 423,000 in 1920 to 1.2 million in 1930. But the U.S. Border Patrol established in 1924 helped to define a new category of employee, the undocumented worker. That most AFL members were white U.S. citizens did not shield their unions from attack. Inspired by the still strike's defeat, employers in industry after industry formed associations to drive out unions. Corporate publicists called for open shop, the spirit of the Constitution. More than a hundred detective agencies, meanwhile, supplied companies with operatives to spy on employees, identifying activists for dismissal, starting fights at union meetings, beating up strikers, anything to disrupt union organizing. When unions fought back by every means available, including gigantic strikes by textile workers, railroad workers, and coal miners in 1922, but the hopes of 1919 had evaporated. The 1920 elections brought Republicans into office. A short, sharp depression in 1921 through 1922 threw close to a fifth of the nation's labor force out of work. Strike after strike went down to defeat, and unions were crushed or crippled. By 1923, total union membership had dropped to about 3.6 million. Unions had 
disintegrated in meatpacking and textiles. The United Mine Workers and Machinists had suffered major losses, and the AFL had lost a quarter of its membership. Labor's post-war changes include passing of three men who had long dominated the movement, Sam Gompers, Eugene Debs, and Bill Haywood. Gompers went first. He died on December 13, 1924. Debs died on October 20, 1926. He had started his 10-year sentence for sedition in April 1919. Running as prisoner 9653, he won over 900,000 votes in the presidential election of 1920. Already sick with diabetes, Bill Haywood jumped bail after his conviction of sedition and fled to the Soviet Union, where he died on May 18, 1928. The post-war depression gave way to a spectacular economic boom, one of the biggest in U.S. history. The boom was based on industrial production and business profits. From 1924 to 1929, auto and steel production rose by nearly 50%. Chemicals and electrical equipment by even more. Total pre-tax corporate profits increased by more than half from $7.6 billion in 1924 to $11.7 billion in 1929. Profits financed more mergers and consolidations. More than 300,000 industrial corporations operated in 1929. The largest 200 giants like U.S. Steel, Anaconda Copper, General Motors, and Westinghouse Electric made more profits than all the rest combined. Speculators did very well. Average prices nearly tripled between 1922 and 1929. By 1929, there were 486 investment corporations, stocks and bonds, their only assets, and one new one started on average every day. Many workers shared in this prosperity. Average wages rose modestly but steadily during the boom years. While the cost of food and other necessities remained relatively constant. Homes, too. The best-paid workers found mortgages easier to get. More and more families could afford to keep their children in school past the 8th grade. During the 1929, state and federal courts issued 921 labor injunctions, about the same number used from 1877 to 1919. Police routinely arrested strikers. 7,500 during a 1926 garment worker strike in New York City, 2,400 during a 1928 textile strike in New Bedford, Massachusetts. In the spring of 1929, William Green, Samuel Gompers' successor as AFL president, declared that the appalling indifference of the workers themselves ruled out the unionization of mass production. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.